0: sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is what Martin Luther calls the great exchange, the great exchange. God, the person who was injured, has come back to the people who have injured him and asked to be reconciled. What that doesn't look like is this. I was at Food Lion three weeks ago, I was shopping. Maybe it was longer than that. And I was in the vegetable section. I think I was picking out squash, probably. My wife likes squash. I'm picking out, I'm out of my own business, looking at the squash. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, somebody in a shopping cart rams into the back soft part of my ankle. Ooh, yeah. I didn't curse, but I went, ooh. And I turned around, and the woman behind me looked at me with a big smile and said, I can't stand this expression. She said, no worries. And I said, you're using that wrong. What are you no worries. You hit me. I'm supposed to look at you and say, no worries. I'll be okay. You're forgiven. I'm the injured party. The person doing the injuring doesn't say no worries. She didn't know how to use it. (laughs) No worries. It's all good. That's my other favorite. It's not all good. It's not. Let's be honest. It's hard. I just started crying at dinner the other night after a long, long week. It's not all good. This is a hard thing to be on this earth. That's that chafing that we all feel, this following Jesus, the saying we believe, singing these songs. We're crazy. Paul says it. It's, it's not all good. But God, in his infinite mercy, seeks to be reconciled to us. We just read it. So it's like, it's not like, we, we have offended God. We have done what we ought not to have done, and we just go back to our houses, and we close the door, and we say, thank you, God, I'll have nothing to do with you. And the injured God the creator, savior of the universe, walks up to our door, taps on it, and kind of speaks through the crack, don't, don't you want to be in relationship with me? That's the injured party seeking to be reconciled. It's crazy. We don't, that's not the way things work. If the person that was injured doesn't feel like reconciling, that's the way it is. I don't forgive you. I don't forgive you. But, but no, that's not the way our God works, and that's the way, through this exchange, we become righteous. I talked last week as I preached about a bad trade I made one time. I had a baseball mitt. I loved it. It was oiled. It worked great. I could catch everything with it. Some would say I couldn't, but I say I could. Anyway, a friend of mine had a catcher's mitt, and I traded him. I said, oh, I'd love that mitt. And I hated the catcher's mitt, but I couldn't get out of the trade. I said, let's trade back, Ed. And he was like, I'm not trading back. I love your mitt. I'm stuck with this mitt, a bad trade. And I likened that to the end of Genesis from last week's reading. Genesis chapter 2 ends with these words, Adam and Eve were naked in the garden with God, and they were unashamed. So they were in a state of complete truth. They were spending time with their creator. They were spending time with one another, and it was sinless. And I said, I wonder what that was like. And then in four verses, they exchanged the sinlessness for the lie of the world. And I said, they made a terrible trade. They traded the truth about who God was and what their life was meant to be for the lie of the world. It was a bad trade. Well, this, folks, chapter 5, 2 Corinthians, verse 21, is a good trade. It's a good trade. Plus, we got nothing to offer except a big stinking, you know, we got nothing but our sin. He gives us his righteousness in exchange for our sin. And lastly, it's free. It's free, and this is where I want to bring it to close. It's as if there's this fountain in the middle of a public place that has the most beautiful, cold drinking water on the planet. And this is Charles Spurgeon's image. It's not mine. It's beautiful, though. And this fountain just bubbles continually. And some people, when offered this beautiful, cold drinking water on a hot day, will rush headlong into the fountain and lean over and just drink it one after the other. Some people, though, will walk by with their Yeti glass or their Dasani water bottle and say, no, I don't need that water. It's in a, it's, it seems kind of messy to be drinking in public like that. Anyway, that's not for me. That's not for me. God's gift of righteousness is a free gift. We have to accept it, though. But there will be some who do not. There will be some who do not. So Paul's point this morning, in the midst of all of this talk about zombies and the kingdom, is that God uses us, the undead dead who are limping and wounded, walking behind him, that's the way we look on the outside, um, to usher in this kingdom. Paul says it this way in verses 11 through 14. He says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We know who God is, he says. We try to persuade men. We try talking, and what we are is plain to God. God knows what's in our heart, And it's also plain to your conscience, the people he's talking to. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen. So if it matters to people how people look, Paul's saying we'll try to look like we've got our act together, the external, rather than what is in the heart, because we know God looks in the heart. Here's my two verses. If we are out of our mind, tea room, meals on wheels, praise team singing, Anything that you volunteered for in this church, if we are out of our minds, if we're doing those kinds of things and people look at us, um, it's for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, if we're doing earthly things, it's for the sake of the people who don't believe. Why do we do it? Because, verse 14, Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one has died for all. One has died for all. We are the undead dead. The reason that we are working out God's plan of salvation and redemption, the reason that he is using us in this beautiful thing called creation, is that I believe it mirrors the way the kingdom grows. You see, nature grows, bears fruit, dies, spread more, and spreads more seeds, only to repeat the process over and over again. Our lives do the same thing. We grow sometimes, we bear fruit, sometimes we have to die to bad habits. And then sometimes those seeds that are born are spread to create more harvest. And finally, I believe this happens because it answers a question that is in the hearts of all of us. It's a question that science can't answer. Why? Science can't answer why. This is not a closing point to pit science against religion. Don't hear that because I think they don't work opposite of each other, and I'm not alone. Many great scientists. I went to a, a, um, oh, a, a thing last year where I heard many, many scientists speak many of whom believe in God. They believe in a creator. Some even believe in a creator and his son. So science and religion do not have to be pitted one against the other, but science won't answer the question why. Science can tell you, for instance, what's going on in your body when you fall in love. It can tell you what emotions are being moved, what chemicals are being released, why your heart beats the way it does, why your skin feels the way it does, but it doesn't tell you why we love it doesn't tell you the big existential question why we're even here. Do you ever give yourself permission? Do we ever give ourselves permission to ask those questions? Maybe you're alone in your quiet time if you can get it or in your car you turn the radio off. The big questions, why are we here? Why was I born a man? Why? I mean, the big ones. Well, the kingdom of God and Scripture and this community that we live in, they all point to the reason why. We were created by this loving God who because the world had fallen wanted us to be reconciled. Verse 21 told us today. And he's going to stop at nothing to do that. He's going to stop at nothing to do that. So I hope this week, as you look into the mirror before you go to work, or you look in your rearview mirrors in your cars, you remember that Gary said from the pulpit, you're Christian zombies. You are undead dead. You are beautiful Christian zombies. Remember that. I hope it makes you laugh. And I hope you believe it. If you don't believe it, if you get in your car today, and you drive away, and you look at your spouse or your kids, and you say, he is nuts. Undead, dead, I haven't died to anything. Call me. Call me. It is the narrative of the Christian life, brothers and sisters. We have to die to the flesh. If you haven't, call me. I want to I have lunch, breakfast, dinner, coffee, tea, or whatever. I, I want to talk to you about that. That's what's required. We must give up our will. That fountain of beautiful cold water is flowing. You've got to lean over and drink it so that you could become one of the undead dead. Amen? Amen. changes from mild to stormy, and it goes from raining to really raining, or maybe even snowing, and you grip the wheel tighter and tighter, and you think to yourself, oh my gosh, something could go terribly wrong here. Or you leave your house, and I'm not talking about obsessive-compulsive, but you leave your house and you think, maybe I left the stove on, or maybe, maybe the iron is still going, but you, you just have this sense of dread. That's what I experienced last night as I began to preach what I thought was a really cool sermon. I sat in my study this week and felt like the Lord had given me an image and given me something to say, and it sounded really neat in my study, but once I started preaching it in front of a group of people and I showed them a picture, um, I could see faces changing and countenances changing, and I thought, something could go horribly wrong here. Because in my seminary, the most popular show while I was in school The most popular show there was one that I did not like, and all the folks in a certain demographic, 25 to 35 years old, they loved the show. I don't remember what time it came on. It was on AMC, and um, they would gather each week to watch this show. (laughs) Exactly. If you're not familiar with The Walking Dead, which is a television show on AMC, maybe you're from an older generation, and you remember a movie in 1968 by George Romero, the Night of the Living Dead, it became kind of a cult classic, cult classic. Both of them however are about the same subject, which is zombies. zombies. Exactly, Jay. I'm preaching about zombies. <laughs> not the entire sermon, not the entire sermon. But what I came to understand about zombies and Carrie, you can turn that off now. To everyone's satisfaction. Is that um What the seminarians saw in this story was a, what I think now, a fantastic metaphor for the Christian life. I think it makes a fantastic metaphor for the Christian life because zombies are undead dead people, right? They're not dead any longer. They're never going to die again, but they were once dead, and so they're these rotting, stinking, gross corpses that come up and terrorize society. Now, that's where my metaphor falls apart because I don't believe Christians are going to terrorize society. But I do believe, though, strongly, if we think about it, if we allow ourselves to think about it, that we are the walking undead dead. So hold that thought. I want to talk a little bit about the other verses of Scripture this morning, and then I'm going to close with my thoughts about us undead dead, these beautiful zombies. The reading that we didn't hear this morning, our church provides four readings every Sunday, We've heard three of them. We heard the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus talked about the parable, actually two parables of seeds and sowing. We heard from Psalm 92, uh, and we heard from Corinthians, which is what I'm actually preaching about. But the one we didn't hear this morning was from Ezekiel. And I want to read that to you so that I can make a point, and that point is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. This is what Ezekiel writes in chapter 17. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is the Lord speaking. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of the cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. Did you hear that in the gospel? Jesus said the same thing. All the trees of the field will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I, the Lord, will do it. So in the other three readings, not the Corinthians reading, in the Psalm, in Ezekiel, and in the Gospel of Mark, what have we got? We've got a botany lesson. We've got a botany lesson. For those of you that don't know what botany is, it's a study of plants. In these three pieces of Scripture, we hear over and over and over again about the kingdom of heaven being like a plant. Being like a plant. I want you to know this about the Ezekiel passage. When the writer of Ezekiel talks about the cedars of Lebanon, he is talking about the nation of Israel. Every time someone gets up and reads Scripture or you're reading Scripture and you hear cedars of Lebanon immediately click your brain over to, oh, he's talking about the nations of Israel. The cedars of Lebanon were the greatest trees. They're the tallest trees. They're the most flourishing trees in all of that dry, arid part of the world. The cedars of Lebanon, the writer is talking about the nation of Israel. When the writer says that God is going to take from the nation of Israel, from its very tip top, from the most succulent, soft, vulnerable piece of the tree, he's going to break it off and he's going to plant that tip of the cedar on a high mountain. The second thing I want you to remember is every time a writer in the Old Testament says mountain, you should think of the divine. God comes to us on the mountain, the people of the Old Testament knew. God's come to us in the flesh now, Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament times, God appeared on a mountain. God appeared to Moses on a mountain, right? God gave his law on the mountain. So anytime you hear mountain, you should immediately think the divine. So on this mountain, God's going to plant this sprig that's going to grow into this amazing tree. He's talking about the person and the work of Jesus. He's talking about his son coming to the earth and starting the kingdom of God here on earth. In the psalm, we heard again about cedars and green growth. In Mark's gospel, we hear this about the kingdom. It starts off insignificant. It starts off insignificant. We've been at it for five months out at St. Timothy's, the church plant that St. Paul's is sponsoring, and we've been doing a food distribution like y'all have, and every month when you announce the St. Paul's numbers, I just kind of shrunk down in my chair and think, man, I wish we could be like St. Paul's, you know. We're just a few people out there and a couple churches, and you know, you guys have done this and this and this. Well, yesterday, that small seed, that little teeny seed five months ago, grew into an amazing, amazing food distribution. I'll share those numbers during the announcements. It's a small seed that grows into something amazing. So there are three things I want you to know about the kingdom before I get back to zombies. Three things I want you to hear about the kingdom of God that all three of these passages echo. They, they sound like a drum. The first is that the kingdom is to flourish and bear fruit. The kingdom is to flourish and bear fruit. Think tea room. Think meals on wheels. Think medical outreach ministry. I do this a lot when I'm up here. Think of all the ways St. Paul's is growing and flourishing. Think about Christians who are rushing into places where they stand in harm's way. Think about Christians who put themselves in harm's way. And it bears fruit. Disciples are grown in the midst of this tree. Disciples are grown. So the kingdom flourishes and bears fruit. The second thing it does, which most of us have taken advantage of, is it provides shelter and shade. It provides air conditioning this morning, but it provides shelter and shade for those of us who, for instance, may be actively grieving. There's grief share. We have innumerable 12-step programs that meet on this campus. We have a healing service on Thursdays for the entire community here. This church, this kingdom on earth, is providing shelter and shade for God's people. And finally, this kingdom will be harvested. It was right there in the Corinthians passage This kingdom will one day be harvested. Jesus will come back. We say it in the creed. We sang it this morning. One day, everything that we've done or said will be accounted for. This kingdom is to be harvested. It's not just going to sit here and be untouched. Jesus will come back to harvest it. Now, back to your favorite part of the sermon, the zombies. So we've got this kingdom. We know that it grows and that it flourishes and that it does all those things that I mentioned. You can leave beautiful zombies up a little bit longer. Everybody's not totally uncomfortable yet. There we go. So like I said, my thesis is that we are beautiful Christian zombies. We're beautiful Christian zombies because that's who God's using to spread the kingdom. God is using by his spirit through all believers, us, these undead dead people, to grow and spread the kingdom. Well, how did he do it? How did God Well, let me me just say this. If you don't completely believe me about being dead and undead, listen to what Scripture says about us believers in Jesus. Romans 8, Romans 8. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead, D-E-A-D, dead, because of sin. Yet your spirit is alive because of his righteousness. All right, listen to Philippians, excuse me, listen to Galatians 2.20, same subject. I, we, believers, have been crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. The life we lived in the body, we now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are the undead dead. Make no mistake about it. But how did it happen? How did we come to be the undead dead? Well, it happens as the Bible describes it in verse 21. We didn't read it this morning, Carrie's going to put it up after she takes that down. Here's how it happened God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Let's say this together. Let's all say it together. God made him who had no sin.